You are listening to episode 2 of the Curiously Specific Book Club. And today, we are sitting in a, in a pub car park. That happens quite a lot. It does. It does. Uh, and you've driven me all the way to a place called Ash. We're in a village called Ash, which is at the top of the North Downs in North Kent, in the Seven Oaks district. We're in search of a dump. We're in search of a dump. We're, we're here because of Stig of the Dump. Stig of the Dump by Clive King. I was brought up in Seven Oaks, and we were always told that the chalk pit and dump in Stick of the Dump was on the side of the North Downs just outside Seven Oaks, a place called Dunton Green. Right. Which is now alongside the M25. But having done the research for this podcast, I found out I was completely wrong about that. <laughs> and it's actually in this in this village called Ash. We think so, don't we? We think so, we're pretty sure. Yeah. We're pretty sure. I mean Clive King said it's in Ash. Yes, well I've seen an interview, we've both seen an interview that he did in The Guardian. He's still alive. He's still alive. He's nearly a hundred. He's still alive, Amazing. and he's living in Norfolk. Living in Norfolk, you're in your neck of the woods. Well, curiously, he is—he's living in a house that's going to be flooded by the sea, a bit like a bit like the house yeah, you're yeah, working yeah. on at the moment. And rather quaintly, he's a rather stiggy character in that apparently he lives in a house where he does sort of make stuff for his house out of bits of old rubbish and stuff oh, he's does found. It? Does yes. it? That's right. Does he collect he's... water in an old bicycle mudguard? Well, he more or less does. It says here that he's actually, he uses an old milk churn as a walking stick holder and the floors are salvaged wooden blocks from a former laboratory. He's into recycling. Okay. And one of the things about this book that has helped it to endure, I think, not just that men of a certain age like it, but it, it prefigures a world of environmentalism, recycling, getting back to nature, and talks a lot about an eight-year-old boy going off and playing with his imaginary friend. Is he imaginary or is he real? Stig. Curiously specific. Chapter one, the ground gives way. If you went too near the edge of the chalk pit, the ground would give way. Barney had been told this often enough. Everybody had told him. His grandmother, every time he came to stay with her. His sister, every time she wasn't telling him something else. Barney had a feeling, somewhere in his middle, that it was probably true about the ground giving way. But still, there was a difference between being told and seeing it happen. And today was one of those grey days where there was nothing to do, nothing to play, and nowhere to go. Except to the chalk pit. Okay, well, let me tell you a little bit about the book then. Published in 1963, written by Clive King. He had basically worked for the British Council since the end of the war, going uh, working in lots of very interesting places. He'd ended up in Aleppo and Damascus in Syria during yeah. the 1950s. Yeah. He spent a large portion of the 60s, early 60s and mid-60s, in Beirut. Really? Yes, so I suspect that he wrote this book, Stig of the Dump, while working in Beirut. Wow. So he wasn't living in Ash at the time. Very different to Ash. So this story, this is a story about an eight-year-old boy called Barney who discovers a caveman living in a chalk pit yeah. uh, just beyond the garden of his granny's house. Yeah. And it's a story really about how a boy who gets to run off all day and play without parental supervision 
and getting up, getting into scrapes. And I think that's what struck a chord for a lot of people at the time. It's written from that point of view of what's it like to be a kid allowed to just run off and be in nature and do your own thing, which even in 1963, when this came out, was starting to be something that you might not let your kids do. And there's all, the other interesting theme of the book that I, I want to talk about is, is about class. Yes. And about this particularly class in this, this part of the world, because the, the Stig, who, who, who ends up at the end of the book sort of maybe having a series of jobs, including like working in a garage and stuff like that. There's also the Snargits, yes. who are the local kind of tough kids yep. that Barney befriends by, sort of by, by basically beating them through his middle-class, privately educated ingenuity. Yes. into um, different communities living alongside each other is a very relevant thing in this part of the world. Very wealthy, middle-class, commuter belt-type people, which is the kind of community I grew up in, living alongside a kind of North Kent indigenous population, which is quite poor, Yeah, that's quite significantly made up of of uh, travelling community. There's quite a lot of travelling community people. There's quite a lot of encampments in Kent that are, you know, that are Roman Gypsy. So there's there's an interesting and there's the all the old kind of hop farms, hop farmers, people coming out of London, East Enders coming to live in Kent. That's all kind of you know in the background as well. So I think. So d- does that mean that you think that this book is set in 1963? It's clearly set over a year. Mm. There are four seasons. It ends on Midsummer's Eve. Mm. I don't know what year it's set in, though. You've got your, I know what year it's set in. <laughs> I'm going to be curiously specific about okay. this. Because I don't know whether you noticed, but there is actually a date mentioned. Chapter 7, right. Party Matters. It yeah. was the Easter holiday. Yeah. And they're getting very excited. Barney's getting very excited because the circus is coming to town. Okay. The travelling show. <laughs> Interesting, it's again, it's about whether circuses are all right. He has a pop at fox hunting in this book. He does, he, he does. He has a pop at circuses in this book. Yeah. It's generally a fairly green book, I'd yeah. say, yeah, and yeah. sort of like um, yeah, yeah. ahead of its time. I would say, yes. But it says, wait a minute, it opens at Maidsford on April the 17th. Very good. That's next week, he says. And then later on, the next page, they say, I'm giving a fancy dress party for my little niece on Wednesday. Right. And then they say, Granny, can we go to the circus? It's next Monday. Right, so, so we know mo- that Monday is April the... 17th. April the 17th. Monday, April, April the, the 17th. 17th. Have you got a year for us then? Well, when in the 50s and 60s was there a Monday, April the 17th? There are only two options. Oh, really? There are, uh, one is 1961. Right. And the other is 1950. So this could be set in the 50s, not the 60s. Yeah. But it's more likely to be 61. Why? Um, Well, here's what I think. In the interview that Clive King gives in the paper, he talks about the fact of his inspiration for this book. And he says that it was based on his own experiences of growing up in the village of Ash. Yeah. So he was a kid in the 1930s. Right. And then watching his own son do the same Uh, two decades later in the 1950s. Okay. And he says, my experience of the chalk pit was doubly enforced. I saw it through my own eyes, and I saw it through the eyes of my children. And this is good. This he says, of course, there wasn't actually a Stone Age man living in a cave at the bottom of it. Good to know. Oh, really? Good to know. (laughs) But Ash was a very boring place to live. And I thought, what it needs is something to wake it up. 
Right. So I invented Stig. Okay. Right, so this is a story about... So he was with his family in Beirut in the 60s, presumably? Well, I don't know. That's a good question, isn't it? Yeah. But he must have spent a large proportion of his time travelling. Okay. So what I'm saying to you is that there is actually a Monday, the April the 17th, in the 30s, in 1933, yeah. when Clive King would have been nine. <laughs> so I'm thinking that we've got 1933 when he's nine. Yeah. 1950, we don't know how. I don't have the age of his son, but his son was obviously young in the 50s. But he's got to be nine in 1950. And then there's 1961, which is when he was writing the book. And is it more likely his son was nine in 1961? I think he may have been a bit older than that in that because he's talking about. He talks. He's referenced here. He said, "I saw it through the eyes of my children." Two decades later. So he was nine in, in 1933. Yes. So he can't have had kids before... He had them after the war. After the war, which means they, would have, they wouldn't have been nine in 1950. No. They would have been... So 61. 61 sounding quite well, good. 61 is sounding 61 quite good. Sounding so this book good. is set in 1961, but I think with him thinking about 1933 as well. Mm. Curiously specific. But I think there's something very specific about the locations. I think we should just describe Ash topographically because it's important. Yeah. So we're on the top of the North Downs, obviously Chalk. Chalk's, a, Chalk's the major rock feature around here. Ash is along a road that runs, South Ash Road, that runs, it runs alongside an area of land which is now a golf course, which we're going to come on to, at the top of which is a farm and a paddock called Swan Farm, which we're also going to come on Paddock to. is mentioned a lot in this the book. The paddock's mentioned a lot. So Barney gets to the dump by going out of the back of his granny's house. Yes. At the back of her garden, then across the paddock. Yep. And then he finds the dump in a cop behind a copse of trees. And the dump is obviously on the side of a hill because he goes in at the top and he comes out at the bottom. Right? So Ash is at the top of a, a slope. And the slope runs down where the golf course currently is. It runs down to where, well, the A20, to the valley. So I think the topography is Granny's house next to the road in the edge of the village. You can There's a whole bunch of houses it could be, but let's just say it's Granny's house there. Out the back of the garden, across the paddock. Now, there's an interesting thing between the paddock <laughs> and the golf course <laughs> yeah. that wasn't there in 1961, but is there now. We stumbled across it. We should go there now and talk yeah. a little bit about that interesting thing because yeah. it's quite interesting. We're not stopping though, are we? We're not stopping for long. <laughs> well, no, we you know we're being a bit unfair. You'll find out why we mean that. <laughs> All <in> right. <laughs> Curiously specific. So we are now gone down a road and are parked up with a paddock on one side. I'd yeah. say paddock, which, where horses are kept. Yeah. And to my left. A dump. I've got bricks, smashed up toilets and sinks, a burnt out bed mattress. Yeah. Bits of a car, I think. Yeah. Yeah, just just general devastation and burnt crap everywhere. It is a it's a modern day dump. And behind it are cops of trees, which you can imagine there being yeah. uh, a chalk pit behind, which we can't get to the moment. And this is called Barnfield Park. Barney Field. This is actually a, a, a council traveller site that was founded in the 1990s. It's got in the 1970s a place called Swan Farm. Yeah. In 1973, travellers, Romany gypsies, 
started buying up plots on Swan Farm for about seven or eight thousand pounds a plot for the land. Around here. Around here. Right. On, on Swan Farm. The thing is, it didn't have any develop. It didn't have any planning permission. Yeah, of so course. They were just buying the land, and they were living, and they moved there, and started living there. In the ni- in the 1990s, the council come along and say, "You can't do that. You can't have that here." Mm. But what we'll do is, we'll we'll buy the land back off you. Yeah. And then we'll we'll, we'll build you a proper site with lighting and everything. Okay. And that's what they promised them. But what actually happened was they bought the lot, lots off the off the off the gypsies for like two or three hundred pounds per lot. Yeah. Having spent several thousand on them, then the council gave planning permission on the land, which immediately made it much more valuable, and then sold it back to them at fifteen thousand pounds a lot. Oh my god! And put them in this place called Barnfield Park, which is surrounded by pretty high security fencing, yes. lighting. Signs. It looks more like an open prison than it does like community. A community, to be honest with you. And this is what in the book we have to say that Barney meets up with. Sorry, mate. Yeah, yeah, we're just we're just parking up. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm just turning around. They don't like hanging around. They don't like hanging around. But yeah, so this is Barnfield Park, and it's between the cop, between the paddock. Yeah, and where we think the pit is, and it's now there's this gypsy community, and this is basically there's an episode in the book where Barney meets the Snargits. He does, who are village boys. Yeah, and um, they have a bit of a fight. Yeah, but then they sob. The, actually, Stig sort of brings them together in a way, doesn't he? He does, uh, and they they share some jelly babies. They, stares, they share some jelly babies. Are you, so you're moving on because that guy just came and stared you down. Well, no, is that we're, why? We're done. Yeah, well, I don't know, he, might, he might be calling his mates. It's, it's a kind of this part of the world, this, you know, this Kent is obviously a very wealthy place. Yeah. And these kind of communities have been. So what year was it? Away. This this scam. What year was that? That, that started in that was in the seventies. They started buying up the land in the seventies. Yeah, but when, when this thing in the nineties. The nineties, ninety six. Ninety six. Yeah. You do realise that the luxury golf course next door was Indeed. opened in '93. Exactly. Golf it's course. not unrelated, is it? No, of course it's not unrelated. That they, they obviously the council and the golf club people had a little chat about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say. Yeah. So where are we going now? We're going to go. We're going to go see the golf course. The golf course, because that's where we think the dump is, don't we? We do think the dump is on it's the golf course. It's now become a feature of the golf I course. I think. I think. <laughs> I think Jack Nicholas killed Stig. It went straight down the middle Then it started to hook just a wee wee bit And that's when my caddy lost sight of it That little white pellet has never been found to this day But it went straight down the middle Like they say So here we are, the London Golf Club Public Notice Footpath. Please stay on the path. Trespassers will be prosecuted. So topographically speaking, you're thinking... So all the, so we've got the houses along the road. Yep. We've just been to the Traveller's site, which is off the road. And then you've got... I don't, I don't know what this was like in the 1950s and 1960s. I'm assuming it was just all open land. 
but now it's a golf course, right? Ah. The London, it's the London Golf Club. It's a very swanky golf course. They've stolen they have, Stig's dump. They've given us the, the enormous privilege of walking through their golf course on a public footpath surrounded by signs saying, step off the footpath and you will be executed or something like that. But just you're, a, you're, 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 um, I'm you're, quite, a, I'm you're cross, on a journey here. I'm cross about this golf course. Because you're a bit of a golfer, I play a bit of, I play a bit of golf. But, but, this is, but they killed Stig, basically. Right? <laughs> so they built this course on the side of the hill going all the way down into the valley. Yep. And it's full of water features that, have been, okay. that are filled in pits. Oh. So I'm pretty sure that one of these pits must have been Stig's dump. Right? I think I th- Jack Nicholas designed one of them. There's two courses here. Jack Nicholas designed one of them. I think Jack Nicholas killed Stig, drowned him. We're now yeah. walking in, it's very grand. We're, we're, we're yeah. in the public, we've got, we've got to the main building. Yeah, which is quite huge. Well, was, so the course was opened in 1993. Yes, as we've said, the shenanigans over the land was in sort of 1996. So soon afterwards, it's a stitch up here, isn't it? Stitch up, opened by Dennis Thatcher, of course. Oh, cost 40 lovely. million to build. Some of the people who've been played here: Clint Eastwood's played here, Sean Connery, Henry Cooper. <laughs> um, <laughs> all the, all Nick, the Le- Nick Leeson was a member. Oh, right? Nick Leeson was a member. No. At the time, a few years later, they described it as golf's biggest financial disaster because it was struggling to make a profit, right? So it was sold. Oh, so it's a big white elephant. It's a big white elephant, but it was sold. So I actually looked it up on the um, company's, oh, you, company's house. Did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, about yeah. who bought it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's owned by it's owned by London Golf Club PLC. Yep. They've got planning. Check this out. They've got planning permission for a new 130-room five-star hotel. Ooh, they're ooh, building here. Ooh, lovely. It lost £95,000 last year. Gosh. On turnover of £4.5 million. Pounds. Okay. It's owned by the London Golf Club. This, this, is, this, this is modern Britain, ladies and gentlemen. Here we go. It's owned by the London Golf Club Development Limited. The ultimate parent company is Balearic Holdings, registered <laughs> in the Netherlands Antilles. That company yeah. is controlled by the NJAF S78 Trust in Guernsey. Right. <laughs> Little bit of politics there. So we've got we've got a traveller community that's been fenced in like it's in an open prison off to the right. We've got this new we've got this new golf course. Which we're looking down onto we're looking down the hill now. Oh there's a lovely water feature. Onto a onto a feature and somewhere in there is a chalk pit. Is a filled in chalk pit. Filled in chalk pit. There's a there's a bit at the end of the. It's book. either been fi- it's either been filled in or it's been turned into a hole basically. So so you kind of you've got sort of, you've almost got the history of North Kent in miniature up here, which I think is one of the interesting things. You've well, got you've got a community that probably probably traces its roots back to the hot picking communities of the sort of right back to the 17th and 18th centuries, and then you've got these. Arrivists who've <laughs> come in, the and, golfers, and built this bloody golf course. Um, do you think Clive King was aware of all that? It, do you think this book it, is about I, class I, war? I think you're right about. Well, I think, but it's also we, we've talked a bit about the, the, the scene with the Snargets, where Barney plays of the Snargets, and it's like there was a time when, you know, private middle, privately educated middle class young boys could go and play with the local boys. And it was kind of that, that was fine. Yeah. Not anymore. No. Not anymore. No, because there's a bloody great the fence. The snargets are behind a bloody fence. Yeah. And you're not allowed to see them. Yeah. And uh, you know, and you can't. I, I, the, I should and say. And you'll be prosecuted if you it, wander off the I path. I should say it cost 
To become a share-owning member of the London Golf Club yeah. costs twenty-seven thousand pounds. Okay. And the non-sharing member costs nine thousand pounds. Right. So this, as so a the snargets mm. ain't getting in, right? Right. So what we're saying is a modern-day retelling of this. Yeah. That, that Barney Barney is is basically um, either in the private members' club, yeah. playing practicing golf with his. Well, not his dad because his dad won't be there. Yeah. But um, or he's a or he's not going out at all and just watching television on his or pl- on his PlayStation. Right. And, and the, the Snargets are busy burning tires and running tires. dogs around the place and being horrible to horses. Well, we found a few stories about them being horrible to horses. It is interesting reading the local newspapers because they, you know, they, the only time they cover the traveller communities is when there's a crime committed. Um, there was a bit of ram raiding going on, but they they ram raided some cash machines. And then there's cruelty to horses, which when you then think about the pony ride to the stones, you're thinking that pony's one of those horses. Of course, isn't it? It is. That that that's being fed on ragwort and not getting wormed properly, and the RSPCA coming in and reporting them. You do you talk about the modern retelling? Yeah. It would be a very different story, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be a very different story. And he, they wouldn't be able to get to the Stones because they weren't National Trust members. Oh. <laughs> I'm looking across the golf course now We're and around, I'm I think seeing a slope down from the woods, from the edge of the golf and course. And there's, there's obviously a big slope there's down there. There's a slight there. big drop down there. There's so if clearly... we were allowed to go in there, if we paid our 28 grand and went in there... Yeah. We could probably find the exact location of the dump. Yeah. And the fact that we can't tells you everything that Clive everything King need, wanted to tell you. Everything you need to know about, about Britain. What's 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 happening to uh, the children's play experience? The stick of the dump. Social commentary. Yeah. Gritty social commentary. Gritty social commentary. I'm going to add one more thing about gritty social commentary about Clive King is that I, I mentioned in the dates that um, this is 61. He's working in Beirut in 1961. Right. He's probably writing bits of this book while working in Beirut, not sitting in ash. No. And so he does say, actually, in this interview that I keep referring to... It's a Patrick Barkham interview in The Guardian, wasn't it? Yeah, he says, I've travelled quite a bit and I've met so-called primitive people abroad. They are not primitive people. They are not so different from us because he wants to refer to the idea that their ingenuity in sort of making stuff out of trash and repurposing items is something he saw all the way across Beirut, Damascus, Aleppo, wherever he was going. And, he's, and that's what Stig is. Stig yeah. is, is that kind of person, that yeah. kind of kid, yeah, that yeah. kind of person. So again, this thing of Stig... By the way, do you, you do realise that public school boys call sort of co- slightly scruffy common boys Stig in the I 60s? I didn't know that. I yeah, didn't know that. That's a nickname for... If, you, if someone's a uh, Stig... The reason why Stig is called Stig in Top Gear by Clarkson is that Clarkson is referring to him as a slightly common scruffy man. I didn't know that. In his public school way. I didn't know that. Yes. Yes. We are curiously specific... It was then that the children went midsummer crazy. Without a word, Lou grabbed the pony by the mane, Barney legged her up on the pony's back, Lou hoisted him up in front, and before they could stop to think, they had cleared the fence and were galloping, straight for the edge of the pit. The pit was there all right. The pony poised on the edge. Then with a spring and a scramble, which kept them too busy clinging with legs and hands to think what was happening, Flash was down and up the other side. What had happened? Instead of the great quarry, there was a mere scratch in the ground. And now nothing was familiar. They expected every minute to come to the cornfield beyond the copse, but the thickets and glades stretched on and on. They were treading the slope, which should have led to the lane, and Flash slowed down a little, but from far ahead came Dinah's mad yelping and the crashing of undergrowth, 
and the pony needed no urging to pursue the hunt. And still no landmarks came in sight. No open fields, no hedges, no orchards, no farms, only hazel thickets, beechwoods, and the chalky hillside. Without a rein to guide or restrain him, the pony went like the wind, his head well up, and Barney and Lou could only cling there with their bare legs and look with round eyes at the strange landscape. So we're at uh, so we're at Kit's Kit's Coty House on the uh, far side of the Medway from Ash. Yep. The other side of the Medway. There's actually a helicopter just in the sky over there, hanging the, in the sky. The Medway Valley in front of us, and we're standing by a, a group of standing stones. You've got three stones standing vertically with a great big slab of rock sitting over the top of them, and this is Kit's Coty House. It's called. And it would have been the entrance to a, a barrow, a Neolithic barrow, so a mound of earth that would have run, I guess, back towards the valley because we're at the we're at the end of it, and the, behind us there's a, like a wood. Mm. So we came out of this, we came down this quite old feeling pathway, didn't we? Yeah. To get here, and you come out from the trees, and then there's things standing right in front of you. So I think we have to imagine there would have been this would have been the entrance to a barrow, the barrow going behind it down towards the valley. And that's how it's described in the book. Shall I read that bit in the book? You definitely should. He sat up and saw that leading away from where the rock lay was a sort of raised mound. This end of it was level with the ground, but the far end ran out to the tops of three other huge stones that were standing upright lower down the hillside. Barney thought he could see now what they had brought the slab all the way up the hill for. If they humped it along this mound, they could put it so that it rested on top of the three standing stones. And there it would be, a house for the king or a temple or whatever it was that people put big stones across the top of others for. It seemed a grand idea to Barney. And this is all happening on Midsummer Night, isn't it? Midsummer Night. Um, and we're no longer in 1961. Well, we just don't know what's happened. <laughs> so they, so they, 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 ride huh? the, they ride up Pony out of ash. It was then that the children went Midsummer crazy. Yes, that's right. That's right. So they basically... With Stig, no, they've got on a pony, haven't they? They've got on a pony. They've got on a pony, presumably away. one of the travelling community's they uh, realized, ponies. They realised they were, they were galloping up a little valley between clumps of bramble and taller bushes. There was a line of beech trees at the top of the little valley and Barney felt there must be something the other side of them. And they realised they were standing on the edge of the North Downs, a place they knew well enough. There should have been pylons striding over the land, carrying electric cables. There should have been squares of orchard, hop gardens, villages and church. There should have been cement works in the distance by the river. And where was the tall television mast with the red light on top? Yeah, where is Can it, you mate? See the tall television mast? Where is there it, is. mate? Where? On top of the, the top. Oh, of the there. Mast. Okay, Over I got there. you. I got you. And that's the cement works down there, I bet. Yeah. Okay, I'm starting to buy it. So we've been to Cauldron Barrow, which is the nearest barrow to Ash. Yes. Which felt like it was in the right place in terms of geographically but it didn't look right because it wasn't three stones with a stone on top this is three stones with a stone on top yeah so it feels like it's more like the right place they don't mention crossing the river do they they don't mention crossing the river but if you're going midsummer crazy i suppose it doesn't really matter they also don't mention time traveling back five thousand years you know these <laughs> things are taken as red but the other interesting thing about this is it's quite near rochester what why is that interesting well clive king went to school in rochester he went to king's school in rochester Tell, well, we tell, need, tell everyone your theory. Well, I, my theory is based on being very specific about dates. Yes. 
So what we do know about this book is that it does mention dates, and the first time you meet Stig is in the autumn. Yeah, there are carrots. Yes, so it's basically sort of late August, early September. End of the summer holidays. End of the summer holidays. And, he say, and then he says, I'll see you at Christmas. Yeah. I, I'll see you at the next holiday. holiday. Yeah. And then he says, to, then it's Easter, yeah. when, they, uh, when, the, when the fair is coming, yeah. the circus is coming. Yeah. And then it's midsummer. Yeah. So what's happening in between all those holidays if it yeah. isn't that little Barney is at school? Parents are never mentioned, are they? They are mentioned right at the, right end, at the end, and weirdly, just here. Yeah. It wasn't until quite a long time later that they went with their parents for a picnic on the North Downs, where the four stones stand. Yep. And as they ate their sandwiches, their parents got into an argument about Stone Ages and Bronze Ages, and about how the stones had got there at all. Now, that's the only time we see them spending any time with their parents. And they're arguing. And they're arguing. <laughs> they're not really arguing about Stone Ages and Bronze Ages, are they? No, no. <laughs> no, no. No argument in a marriage is ever really what the argument is about. <sighs> but I, my theory about that is, basically, poor old little Barney is yeah. he's shipped off to school. And then, in the, and then his parents aren't... They, even the holidays, they don't want to see him. Yeah, he goes and right? stay with he Granny. He has to go and stay with Granny. So and then the they parents? just add this bit of the parents' bit of having, having a thing with... I'm saying to you is that this is probably about as magical and illusory as going back and meeting a caveman. I don't think it ever happened. <laughs> it wish fulfilment. I think the parents just were never there. Oh, poor Barney. <laughs> and he just made that poor up. Poor Barney. <laughs> so, uh, my second theory is this, that you said, as you said, Clive is a man who went to school in Rochester. Yeah. I suspect he went to boarding school. Yeah, Kings. From about the age of eight yeah. or nine. So he is Barney, yeah, yeah, isn't he? But he also said he'd wrote this story based on his son. His son and his daughter. His son and his daughter. Right. Now, the other thing we know about Clive is that he spent a lot of time in Beirut and Damascus. In six, not, not here. 60 to 66. Yeah. yeah. I, writing this book in Beirut, yeah, yeah. thinking about his... Maybe his, his son. not relationship with his son. Maybe his son is at boarding school. Yes, almost He's thinking certainly. about his son. He sent him to boarding school because it's just you know, no, you can't have him in Beirut. Can he? Should make Granny's house his mum's house. Clive's mum's house. That that's Granny. It's a good theory, isn't it? It's <laughs> a good theory. So the whole book is a kind of. I remember imagining. being at Mummy's house but it's an imagine- and going off to school, and now I'm writing about it for my son, who's. At Granny's house, going off to school. This would be imagining his son playing and imagining back in England. That's rather yes. sweet. Run, yeah, running wild. It's rather nice. Trying to make imaginary friends. Where's Mummy and Daddy? I One day I'll have a picnic with them. I haven't been scarred by the boarding school experience. <laughs> the the I have. So I can, I can see that image as being rather lovely. <laughs> <laughs> you see it as being much darker. Well, I'm just... <laughs> no, all I'm saying is it, it, this book is... As we go wandering around the landscape, we've now discovered that this is really a story about boarding school boys and travelling community kids. Yeah. And how they, whether they get on, get to meet, yeah, yeah. how it works. And it's, rather, it's also rather sweet about what, what it says about Stig, doesn't it? Uh, well, should we read that bit? Yeah, well, that's, that's brilliant. Yeah, go and for it. And what about Stig? Well, if you ask Barney, he will say in an offhand manner that he's still living in the dump. The grown-ups never really knew just how real he was, but they got used to the idea that wherever there was a pile of old thrown-away things, an unseen stig was likely to be poking around in it. And whenever there was a particularly odd job to be done, like making sure a rainwater butt didn't spring a leak, then someone would say, let's get stig to fix it. (laughs) Actually, the dump's filling up fast now. Love that line. And stig may be on the move. One report was that he'd been seen working at a garage by the main road. (laughs) 
<laughs> where they collect old wrecked cars and put the pieces in rusty parts so scrapyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And somebody else said he saw him in a back lane of that woody country at the top of the downs, mending a chicken run with an old wire mattress. It certainly sounded like Barney's friend Stig, but perhaps it was only a relative of his. He knows exactly what he's doing he there, does, doesn't he? He really does. He knows exactly what he's doing. So Barney's not friends with him anymore. Oh man, because he's because be, he's he's, he's been drilled it. in the public They're school in way. Social circles, oh. they can't be friends anymore. And and to his mum and dad, Stig was never real because those people are never quite real. And then if we don't, if they become too real, we move them on. <laughs> we move them on exactly. to another little estate. Rather, your your friend Stig are all too vivid. <laughs> Anyway. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. He does. So that business about him being sort of ahead of his time about environmentalism and and nature, he's also yeah. There's a very strong social commentary yeah, here yeah, yeah, about yeah. how do kids get to grow up with all the kids in their community yeah, yeah, yeah. or not? Yeah, yeah. And the answer is not. No, no. And and we impose that on them because of what we choose to do without their educations. Mm. And their... I feel we may be overreading it a bit, but. We might be overreaching a bit. And here we are by a standing stone thinking, oh gosh, that's a story as old as the stones. (laughs) And that, my friend, is Stig of the Dub. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Set free by the teen angels from his prehistoric block of glacier ice comes the world's first superhero, Captain Caveman. Now the constant companion to the teenagers, Brenda, Dee Dee, and Taffy, in their hilarious and sometimes scary mystery missions. Get ready for Captain Caveman and the Teenagers. We are curiously specific. Four. Straight down the middle. It went straight down the middle. Then it started to hook just a wee, wee bit And that's when my caddy lost sight of it That little white pellet has never been found to this day But it went straight down the middle